So I'm glad you guys are, are here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can open up to, uh, to Genesis uh, 37. Uh, that's where we're going to, uh, to be this morning. Uh, and uh, as, as you're, tr- you're turning there, Bruce and I have a, a running joke that uh, his wife, Carol, has more tools than both of us combined. Uh, and so when I, uh, I'm not extremely handy, but I, on occasion I'm able to fix uh, something. If it's, if it's basic, uh, I'm able to fix it. And uh, when I need a tool, I go into uh, Carol's toolbox uh, out in, in the garage uh, and find uh, whatever it is that I need for the, uh, the, the job uh, at hand. Uh, so, uh, and, and we all do that, right? Depending upon the, the situation, we understand um, what what the problem is that needs to be fixed, and then we go uh, we evaluate, and then we go get the tools necessary to fix that. Or if we want to uh, to build something, uh, we we uh, go plan out what tools we need uh, in order to to accomplish our project, and then uh, after that, we we use those tools to accomplish our goals. Uh, and uh, earlier we read uh, in Romans uh, eight uh, eight twenty eight, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Uh, for we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what Paul summarizes so succinctly there uh, in, in one verse uh, in Romans, uh, Moses is going to, to kind of lay the foundation for that in 14 chapters here uh, in Genesis. So uh, this isn't going to be a, a typical uh, expositional preaching. We're not going to go through all 14 chapters uh, of uh, Genesis 37 through 50, line by line. Uh, but I'm going to pull out uh, just kind of some, some key uh, big uh, concepts because uh, what we're going to see this morning is, hey, what, what are the tools in, in God's toolbox uh, that he uses to bring about his will? Uh, he, he has uh, a purpose, a plan uh, that he's planned uh, from the very beginning and he's working to, to bring it about. Uh, God in his uh, in his wisdom, has planned the beginning from the end. And then he, in his omnipotence, he's able to not only plan what should happen in the end, but he is able to bring it about. Uh, and so what we're going to be looking at uh, today is uh, Genesis uh, 37 through, through 50. But I think the first verse that you have up there. Oh, no, it's, it's there. All right. Uh, but as you, uh, as you look through Genesis, uh, if you have your Bible there, uh, Moses does this uh, amazing job of, of kind of marking out sections clearly for us. Uh, and if you kind of turn back to the very beginning of Genesis, you'll see uh, this phrase that's repeated over and over again, uh, and it marks out a, a new section in Genesis. You see it first in Genesis 2-4, uh, where Moses writes that these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And then again in, in Genesis 5-1, of these are the generations of Adam. Uh, and then in 6-9, these are the generations of Noah. 10-1, uh, these are the generations of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, 11.10, these are the sons or the generations of Shem. 11.27, now these are the generations of Terah. Uh, 25.12, these are the generations of Ishmael, Abram's son. Uh, Then we have 25.19, of these are the generations of Isaac. Uh, 36.1, these are the generations of Esau. And then the last section uh, is one of the largest. Uh, We come to the generations of Jacob. And it's literally what what was brought forth by Jacob. Uh, and oftentimes we think of this last portion of Genesis as being primarily about who? Who do you think of? Joseph. Uh, but uh, oftentimes we, I think we, we focus too narrowly on Joseph and we don't realize that, hey, this is talking about what uh, Jacob's descendants, have, this is what has come from them. Uh, and, and we're going to see, as you see on your notes there, it's kind of a, a, I think more specifically, a tale of two brothers. 
uh, of Judah and of Joseph, and we're going to see uh, how uh, simple decisions and, and, and sin has impacted their lives and how God is going to use all of those things uh, for their good uh, and ultimately for his glory. So uh, as we're going to look at three tools in God's toolbox that he uses this morning, uh, the first one is uh, tool number one is that God is able to use small decisions and chance encounters for our good and his glory. So if you're turn back over to uh, to Genesis 37, uh, we'll begin to look at uh, this section. And let's uh, let's pick it up in Genesis 37:12, where Moses writes. Now his brother, speaking of Joseph, went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, "Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them." And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, now go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone far away. For I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then he will say that a fear, then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, and, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, and on, the, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let our hand be upon him. Let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. They sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it was your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days, all his sons and all his daughters, and rose up to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. We're going to come back to 
to the latter portion of this. But what I want to focus on uh, at the beginning of this uh, portion that we read is uh, th- this journey from uh, where uh, he and his family lived in Hebron to uh, to Shechem and then ultimately up to, to Dothan. Uh, these little little circumstances that the Lord used to bring about uh, this uh, uh, tragedy in and trial in Joseph's life. Uh, and uh, as we saw, uh, you, you have this, uh, first this, this small decision on the part of Jacob uh, to send his son Joseph uh, about 50 miles uh, up to Shechem uh, to bring a message to his other sons. Uh, and uh, then when, when Joseph gets there, he finds this man uh, or this man finds him wandering in the fields because his brothers aren't there. And then this man just happens to have a knowledge of uh, where his brothers had gone to. Uh, they had left Shechem be- probably because uh, two of the brothers had slaughtered the town of Shechem in Genesis 34. So that may not be the best place uh, to hang out uh, and uh, graze your, your sheep. Uh, so they left the Shechem area and they went up to uh, to Dothan. And so, so Joseph travels up there. But... Uh, you think of what a what a small decision it was for for Jacob to say, "Hey, son, go up, uh, go up to your brothers, uh, go up and and take this message and uh, just see how they're doing." All right, so that's a, this little uh, decision on Jacob's part starts this long chain of events that ultimately culminates in his son not coming back to him for years and years. Uh, and then, secondly, this this man uh, who finds Joseph wandering uh, in the fields what a, what a chance encounter is that, right? Uh, not only that that this man would find Joseph wandering around, uh, you know, the 17-year-old kid wandering in the fields, and you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, what's what's happening? What are you doing? Uh, oh, I'm looking for my brother. Okay, well, I, you know, I know where they are. So what are, what are the odds uh, that he would know those things as well? Not only that he uh, would be able to, t- that yeah, he heard that information, so to speak, of uh, where Joseph's brothers would be, but... This is more than just a coincidence uh, that God is providentially putting this man here uh, to be able to to direct Joseph to to a tragic situation, right? I mean, think of what what happens if that man doesn't find Joseph wandering in the field. It's a much shorter story, right? Hey, Joseph goes back to his father, couldn't find him, uh, and then they all starve in Canaan when the, the famine hits. Uh, God uses these these really small decisions uh, and these really tiny circumstances uh, to bring about his desired goal and his desired end. What's also interesting is that this man doesn't have a name. Uh, and, and this is just a, a hunch on my part, but I, as I read through Genesis, there was another previous occasion where this unnamed man pops onto the scene. If you turn back to to Genesis 32. Genesis 32, uh, starting in verse 22. The same night he, speaking of Jacob, arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had, and Jacob was left alone. And then, out of nowhere, a man wrestles with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said to Jacob, Then... 
And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? Uh, And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So, you, you see this un, unnamed man suddenly suddenly comes upon Jacob there in the wilderness, and, and they have a wrestling match. Uh, we don't have time to, to talk all about that uh, today, but they but it's an epic wrestling match. They wrestled all night, uh, and ultimately this this man leaves without telling his name to Jacob. Uh, but but what's the impression that Jacob gets at the end? Well, he gets the impression and, and understands, hey, I have been wrestling with God. I've seen God face to face. And that's why he named the, the place Peniel. Uh, of, hey, he understood that he had an encounter with God there. And then, so it's just interesting. Now, can I speak definitively uh, on whether or not this, this same man from Genesis 32 is the same in, in Genesis 37? No, because it's not necessarily clear. Uh, but it's a possibility. Uh, and either way, you see this isn't, this isn't just a chance encounter uh, of, the, of this person with, with knowledge of where Joseph's brothers are. Uh, th- this is divine providence. This is God working uh, in, in small means, in, in simple day-to-day events to bring about his intended purposes. Uh, when God has a plan for, for Joseph's life, uh, and Joseph doesn't understand what it is. He doesn't see that these little uh, decisions that have been made, these little chance encounters are guiding him and directing him uh, to exactly where God wants him to be. Uh, but it's going to be a, a difficult path. and uh, kind of A form of art that, that's not too popular these days, uh, but it used to be popular in a bygone time, would be a, a tapestry. Okay? Uh, this, this tapestry is kind of a, a vertical rug, so to speak, and, and they would weave uh, a picture on this uh, tapestry and kind of hang it on the wall. Uh, and if you've ever looked at the front of the tapestry, it all makes sense, right? They, they use the, the different colors uh, woven together and in different patterns to present you a picture. Uh, and, and it makes sense on that front side, but if you, if you look on the other side of the tapestry, uh, it looks like a jumbled mess. <laughs> uh, you can't make sense out of anything. It's just like, what is happening here? Uh, and and oftentimes that's how our lives look. We, we're, we're trying to make sense of things. We're trying to look at the wrong side of the tapestry and understand uh, how God is working, not understanding these small chance encounters uh, of how they fit together and, and what kind of a picture is developing in our lives. Uh, so we try and look at the tapestry on the wrong side and make sense of it. But the reality, we won't see uh, the, the right side of that until the, the other side of this life. Uh, until we're in God's presence and then begin to understand, oh, God, that's, that's why you had me go here. That's why I, I spent that time uh, in the wilderness, so to speak. That's why you had me go here. Of, of Man, I, I ministered to that person. I had, you know, they, they rejected the gospel at that point, but I didn't know, you know they, later on, you know, five years later, they accepted Christ. Or, you know, we, we don't know how all of our, uh, our struggles and difficulties are, are being woven together, but... But God does. He has that planned, and he's the one who has the full access to both sides of the tapestry. Corey Ten Boom, uh, who uh, spent years in a, uh, in a Nazi um, uh, women's prison uh, during World War II, uh, wrote this. She said, uh, Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper, and I the underside. 
uh, just just that reality of we don't have all of the knowledge that God has. We don't see how all of our the events of our lives uh, weave together to form a beautiful tapestry. Um, we only see the one side. Uh, and uh, in the next life, we'll, we'll get to see the marvelous tapestry that God is weaving out of our own life experiences uh, and uh, all of those small events in our lives. So, Yet so often, what do we try and do? We frustrate ourselves in trying to understand the tapestry while looking at the wrong side of it. We, we only have access to one side and we try and make sense of life. And if we can put ourselves in Joseph's sandals for a second, uh, do you think he replayed that day uh, when his brothers conspired against him? I mean, he had years and years. And think about how many little things he could have done differently because that's usually our, usually our tendency, right? Uh, when something bad happens, we're like, okay, what could I have done? You know, it's like, okay, so maybe, maybe Joseph thought, what if I, uh, what if I, my dad had never asked me to go? That would have, that would have solved everything. So, you know, maybe he could have been bitter at his dad for a time. What if, uh, he, he thought, uh, you know, my dad should have known better to send me alone to brothers who didn't like me. <laughs> you know, you also think of that, like, hey, uh, Jacob had to have known what was going on. Uh, what if, you know, Joseph also wrestled with, what if I should have just disobeyed my dad? But what if I had just, you know, pretended I couldn't find them? Uh, then I then I would be home with my family. Or, or maybe what if that stranger hadn't found me wandering in the field? Uh, you see, all of these all of these games, all of these what ifs that that Joseph could have descended into uh, and, and detracted him. But does any of that help? Does all of that that mulling over and and kind of working through of okay, what if I had done this differently? Does that change any event in the past? No, and, and ultimately, we see in Scripture God's providential superintendence over everything. Uh, Proverbs 16.33 says that even the, the casting of the lot is, is controlled by God. Uh, and interestingly enough, in, in Joshua 7, they use lots to find out who had sinned against God and to identify Achan. And then uh, the story of Jonah. Uh, the, the sailors use lots to identify, okay, so this storm came upon them, and they're like, okay, so who, who is responsible for this, and whose God is responsible for this? So they literally throw lots, and then the lot goes to Jonah, and they say, okay. And then Jonah says, all right, you've got to throw me into the sea, because, yeah, this is, this is my fault. And uh, they do that. So you see that all of these minute circumstances in our lives that God is able to use, God is able to redeem. Uh, and we have to, from a human perspective, it seems like everything can be can be falling apart. But from a divine perspective, everything is going uh, according to plan. Uh, see, God's plan for Joseph isn't for him to be happy, healthy, and wealthy all of his days. But God's plan uh, is to bring Joseph to Egypt uh, and there raise him up uh, to be the second in command over all Egypt. God's plan is to bring his chosen family, the line of Abraham, to Egypt and allow them to blossom there into a nation uh, that will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and represent God uh, to the Gentile world. And God uses these small decisions and chance encounters as simple tools in his toolbox to bring about his desired purposes and his desired end. Uh, so, so we can rest assured that even though we don't necessarily always see how God is working, uh, we know that he is working uh, slowly, silently, uh, to bring about his purposes and accomplish his goals. That's the first tool that we see this morning in God's toolbox. And uh, the second tool is that, that God is able to use other people's sins against us for our good and his glory. Uh, and, and this is what we're most familiar with in this latter part of Genesis, uh, of, of Joseph uh, experiencing multiple sins against him and how God used those for good to bring about his uh, desired goal. Uh, and 
the sins of Joseph to, uh, or against Joseph, uh, because Joseph isn't doesn't, his, he doesn't have any flaws in this narrative. He's he's one of the few characters in Scripture that there's nothing really negative said about him. But there, there's a whole lot of negative that happens to him. Uh, and just to kind of summarize the the sins against Joseph, we we read them of hey his brothers conspired to kill him, uh, and then upon changing their mind a couple times, uh, hey let, let's sell him as a slave. Uh, so there, there's one sin. Then those who, who purchased him and then sold him down in Egypt. There, there's another sin. Uh, then we have Potiphar's wife, uh, the, the captain of the bodyguard uh, where Joseph was. Joseph was doing such a good job, but, but Potiphar's wife wanted him. Uh, and so she lies, falsely accuses him, and then Joseph gets thrown into prison. Uh, so again, you're like, man, how, how, how many sins against Joseph can there be? And then uh, ultimately the, the chief cupbearer whose dream Joseph interpreted forgets about Joseph when he gets released. So Joseph is in prison for two more years. Uh, and altogether, it's 13 years from the time he's 17 to the time he's 30. He's either uh, spent you know, traveling to Egypt, a, a slave in Potiphar's house, uh, or in prison. Uh, and just you, you see the, these multiple uh, sins that, that are against Joseph, but God uses each and every one of those in Joseph's life um, for, for good. And oftentimes we try and interpret events individually, kind of looking at uh, one thing at a time and saying, oh, well, this makes sense here, and I, I know how to interpret that. And uh, one, one pastor has a, a lengthy uh, illustration uh, about that, and I, and I can't uh, improve upon it, so I'm, I'm going to read it to you. Uh, he says, once there was an old man who lived in a tiny village. Although poor, he was envied by all, for he owned a beautiful white horse. Now, even the king coveted his treasure. A horse like his had never been seen before. Such was its splendor its majesty, its strength. People offered fabulous prices for the steed, but the old man always refused. This horse is not a horse to me, he would tell them. It is a person. How could you sell a person? He's a friend, not a possession. How could you sell a friend? The man was poor and the temptation was great, but he never sold the horse. One morning he found that the horse was not in the stable. And all the village came to see him. You old fool, they scoffed. We told you that someone would steal your horse. We warned you that, that you would be robbed. You were so poor. How could you ever hope to protect such a valuable animal? It would have been better to have sold him. You could have gotten whatever price you wanted. No amount would have been too high. Now the horse is gone and you've been cursed with misfortune. The old man responded, Don't speak too quickly. Say only that the horse is not in the stable. That is all we know. The rest is judgment. If I've been cursed or not, how can you know? How can you judge? The people contested. Don't make us out to be fools. We may not be philosophers, but great philosophy is not needed. The simple fact that your horse is gone is a curse. The old man spoke again. All I know is that the stable is empty and the horse is gone. The rest, <coughs> the rest I don't know. Whether it be a curse or a blessing, I can't say. All we can see is a fragment who can say what will come next? The people of the village laughed. They thought that the man was crazy. They had always thought he was a fool. If he wasn't, he would have sold the horse and lived off the money. But instead, he was a poor woodcutter, an old man still cutting firewood and dragging it out of the forest and selling it. He lived hand to mouth in the misery of his poverty, now that he had proven that he was indeed a fool. After 15 days, the horse returned and he hadn't been stolen. He had run away into the forest. Not only had he returned, but he had brought a dozen wild horses with him. Once again, the village people gathered around the woodcutter and spoke, Old man, you were right and we were wrong. 
We, we thought it was a curse and it was a blessing. Please forgive us. The man responded, once again, you go too far. Say only that the horse is back. State only that a dozen horses returned with him, but don't judge. How do you know if this is a blessing or not? You only see a fragment. Unless you know the whole story, how can you judge? You only read one page of a book. Can you judge the whole book? You read only one word of a phrase. Can you understand the entire phrase? Life is so vast, yet you you judge all of life with one page or one word. All you have is a fragment. Don't say that this is a blessing. No one knows. I'm content with what I know. I am not perturbed by what I don't. Maybe the old man is right, they said to one another. So they, so they said little, but down deep they knew it was a blessing. Twelve wild horses had returned with one horse, and with a little bit of work those animals could be broken and sold for a profit. So this old man had one son, an only son, and, and his one and only son began to, to work to break those horses so that they could be sold in the market. And one day, while he was breaking those wild horses, he fell off of one and broke both of his legs. And, and you know what? All the people come back and, and they say to the old man, You were right. You were proven right again. The dozen horses were not a blessing. They were a curse. <laughs> Our only son, your only son has broken his legs and now in your old age you've, you've no one to help you. Now you are poorer than ever. And again, the old man said, No, wait. You don't know. You don't understand all we know is one thing at a time. And it wasn't but uh, a few days later that their country went to war. And all of the, the young men in the village were rounded up and taken off to war. But there was one who was left behind. And, who, and whose son was it? The old man. And, and then they say, yeah, you know what, old man, you were, you were right again. You know, it was a blessing that your son broke his legs. And, he, and the old man, wait, guys... <laughs> You're not beginning to understand. You can't evaluate the whole on whether or not something is a blessing or a curse. You have to wait. You have to give it time. We don't know how God is going to use anything. Only God knows. And as John MacArthur says, time and truth go hand in hand. And time will eventually reveal how we should interpret our circumstances and what we need to to do is is refrain from evaluating those circumstances too early and too quickly uh, because what seems to be a blessing today could be a curse tomorrow or vice versa and and God is able to uh, to use our circumstances to make us like his son uh, he'll use trials he'll use other people's sin against us uh, to, to put us in situations to put us in circumstances uh, he will use difficult people uh, to bring us uh, to dependence upon Christ. And ultimately, he will use suffering to take our eyes off of this life and lift them heavenward to where our life is hidden with Christ in God. So we must be careful not to jump to interpretations and conclusions about what something or other means. God wants us to walk in faith step by step, allowing him to reveal things uh, as, uh, as he, he does according to his own time. So, th- so then what should we keep in mind when, when other people sin against us? Because that's, these are major sins uh, here that, that Joseph faced. How, do we, how should we respond when, when we see uh, you know, these, these sins committed against us and they, and they bring about circumstances in our lives that are extremely difficult? Well, number one, we need to remember that God does not abandon his people. Now look with me uh, at a couple of verses here in the midst of this narrative of Joseph. Uh, look at 39, uh, chapter 2. 
So Joseph had just arrived in Egypt after being sold as a slave. And 39.2 says, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. So even though Joseph had been sinned against, even though he, he was now a slave, not because of anything that he had done, but because of other people's sin against him, had God abandoned him? No, God was still with him. Look just a little bit later in that same chapter, verse 21. This is, this is after Potiphar's uh, wife had lied about Joseph and falsely accused him. Verse 21 says, But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Uh, and then verse 23, it's repeated again. Uh, the keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him uh, made it succeed. Of this reality, even when uh, people sin against you, even when you're in the most difficult of circumstances, God hasn't abandoned you. Even though it, it feels like that, right? We, we can tell ourselves that lie that Satan wants us to believe. Hey, that God's, God's left you to your circumstances. But the reality is, no. God had not abandoned Joseph and he does not abandon us when other people sin against us. He's still with us in those moments. So first and foremost, we need to remember that, that God is still with us. He does not abandon his people. And then secondly, we need to remember to view our circumstances in, through the lens. You know, I have these glasses. They make the world clearer for me. Uh, we, we need to, to view our circumstances through the lens of God's character. Uh, we need to, to understand uh, and view our trials, looking, th- looking at them through the lens that, that God is completely sovereign. God is good. God is wise. Because that's exactly what Joseph did. Uh, turn over to, to Genesis 45. Okay, when, when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers, uh, he, didn't, he didn't reiterate all of the, their sins against him. Hey, you guys did this, and then you did this. You were going to kill me, and then you left me in a pit, and then you sold me. He didn't go over all of those things. Uh, and, and instead, he, he, he said, hey, you intended this, but, but God intended this. He, he viewed their actions in light of this overarching plan of God. And look with me, 45 verses uh, 4 through 8. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So I mentioned earlier what what Joseph could have been doing and questioning all of these different things that day. Hey, what if this had gone differently and then this and then I wouldn't be right where I am. But, But Joseph didn't do that. He, he looked at his circumstances and said, hey, you know what? My brothers meant this for, for evil, but I see how God has used their evil for good and how he's brought me here to Egypt, how he's made me a father to Pharaoh, and ultimately how uh, the Lord has fed thousands and millions of people because he brought Joseph to Egypt with a plan. And uh, 17 years later... Uh, after Jacob's family had moved to Egypt and Jacob had spent his, his last years there uh, in the land of Egypt, uh, he blesses his sons and then he passes away. And now Joseph's brothers come back to him, worried about 
uh, hey, dad's gone, you know, what, what's Joseph going to do to us? So, so jump over to, to Genesis 50, and, and you'll see that with the passage of time, uh, Joseph still maintains that consistent uh, view of his circumstances through the lens of God's sovereignty and through the lens of God's goodness. Genesis 50, starting in verse 15, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgression of of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. You see, Joseph was able to to look at kind of, I guess, two planes of existence. He sees their sinful actions, but again, he sees beyond that. He sees how God is working over the, the span of years and years. Not not days, not hours, but hey, look look at what God was doing. And you guys meant that for evil, but look at what God has done. God has uh, has turned that into something glorious. So we need to, when, when, when others sin against us, we need to remember, hey, we haven't been abandoned. We need to interpret our circumstances through the lens of God's character. Hey, He's infinitely wise. He's, he's infinitely good. He is an absolute control of everything. Uh, and then ultimately, we need to be sure to remember this second tool, that God is able to use the sins of other people in our lives to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, and ultimately to bring about good for us and glory to God. That, that's the, the second tool that we see in, in this passage. Uh, and then the third tool uh, we'll look at is that God is able to redeem our own sin and use it for our good and His glory. As we saw in, in Genesis 37, uh, as the, this dialogue between uh, Joseph's brothers is, is going on, there's only two brothers mentioned outside of Joseph. Uh, and they're Reuben and Judah. And ultimately it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph as a slave. Reuben wanted to manipulate the situation to get back into favor with his father uh, because Reuben had slept with his father's concubine. So he was, he was on the, the, the bad list with their dad. He says, hey, I can manipulate this and, and get back into his good graces. Uh, and Ju- Judah said, hey, you know what, let's just, let's just sell Joseph and, and be done with this. Uh, and... So we see that in 37, and then we have Genesis 38. And I don't know if you've ever been, been reading through Genesis. You wonder, why is this chapter where it is? Because it, it's almost like uh, the story of Joseph takes a pause, and you have this whole chapter that's about Judah. And you're like, was this misplaced? Like, Moses, did you like, have, had you written this somewhere else? And you're like, oh, let me just put it here. Uh, and I want to say, no, it's exactly where it needs to be, because we're, we're supposed to see... Uh, a change and a transformation in the life of Judah. And, it, and it's subtle. It's not as, as obvious here uh, as what happens to Joseph. But uh, we need to look and see uh, what happens in the life of Judah. Because Genesis 38 is Judah's most embarrassing sin 
put on display for, for everyone in the community to see and ultimately for us to see uh, as well. So in, in, in that chapter, uh, Judah's wife passes away and he ultimately uh, goes into this town and, uh, and unknowingly impregnates his daughter-in-law. Okay, so uh, let's jump into the story then. In Genesis 38, verse, verses 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. The, the ultimate uh, act of hypocrisy there. In verse 25, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law. By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And those are the, the objects that Judah had left behind and that she had taken. So here we have an Old Testament paternity test, so to speak. <laughs> this is the baby daddy um, right here. And, and Judah, and everybody knows that, hey, Judah, isn't that your staff? Isn't that your signet ring? And in verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not know her again. So we see this would have been probably the, the lowest of moments for Judah. Of Everybody uh, in his family, everybody in the community understands what happened uh, and He's, he, they see his sin, they see his hypocrisy. He just, he just called for this woman to be burned, but what does he deserve also? The, the, the same exact thing. Uh, and so th- this would have been absolutely humiliating for him. But I think this was the catalyst that God used to bring transformation in Judah's life. So uh, that's Genesis 38. 39 jumps back into the story of Joseph. And we see... Uh, Joseph in Potiphar's house in, in 39, we see in chapter 40 uh, that Joseph is in prison. Chapter 41, Joseph uh, uh, interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Uh, 42 explains Joseph's brothers going uh, down to Egypt because they were starving and they had no food. Uh, Joseph initially hides his identity from uh, his brothers. I think, in essence, trying to figure out, are they the same as they were? Uh, are they are they the same? Are they different? Uh, and ultimately, he he imprisons all of his brothers for three days, uh, and then he, he releases them and holds Simeon uh, behind. And says, "Okay, go get your your last brother Benjamin, uh, which would have been Joseph's full brother." Um, and the brothers go back to to their father in Canaan. Uh, they go to Jacob uh, and and tell him what happened. And and it's interesting in. In 42, we see Reuben. Uh, Reuben pleads with uh, their father Jacob, and he says, "Hey, like we got to go back. We we need food. Uh, let me take Benjamin down with me because uh, Jacob was hesitant to. I mean, he's already lost uh, his one of his favorite son Joseph. Uh, he's you know Simeon's down in prison in Egypt, and now they want to take his his other favorite son Benjamin away from him. So Reuben comes and he's Reuben's got a plan. He says, okay." Dad, this is, this is what we can do. Uh, let me take Benjamin, uh, and if I don't bring him back, you can kill my sons. You can kill your grandsons. Uh, it sounds like a great plan, right? And, and so Jacob says, no, let's not do that uh, right now. And then in, in 43, 
Judah reappears onto the scene, and he he also has a, a plan that he's going to bring forward to his dad. So let's let's pick that up. Genesis 43, uh, verses 8 through 10. You'll notice a difference in Reuben's plan uh, and Judah's plan. And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be a pledge. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would not. We would now have returned twice. So what the difference here is, Judas says, "Hey, I, I will be your assurance." Uh, if if he doesn't come back, you can require it of me. His blood would be on on my hands, and ultimately, due to uh, the, the you know the continual lack of food, uh, and I think Jacob's a little bit more comfortable with sending Judah down uh, with that uh, as his assurance, rather than hey, you can kill your grandsons. Um, he sends the brothers back down uh, to Egypt to get food from Joseph, uh, and Genesis 44 we see. Joseph continuing to to test his brothers. And 44.14, uh, what's interesting is that uh, Judah is presented kind of as the leader of the brothers. 44.14 says, And when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. He, J- Judah is not the, the oldest. Reuben is. Uh, but here it's, it seems that Judah is presented in this light. Uh, and let's, let's read here, starting in verse 14. So when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. And they fell before him to the ground. Uh, Joseph said to them, and this is right after they had, they had left the second time and Joseph had planted uh, a, a goblet in Benjamin's uh, bag so that they would have to return and c- kind of give account uh, for uh, you know, stealing this uh, goblet uh, that Joseph supposedly used for divination. But, so verse 15, Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how, or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace of your father. So Joseph is in essence trying to get Benjamin to be there with him and send his other brothers away. Verse 18, Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant. For you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, speaking of Joseph, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy us a little food, we said, We cannot go down if our youngest brother goes, uh, if our youngest brother goes with us. Then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. 
Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring my uh, you will bring down my gray hairs to the evil and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant, Judah speaking of himself, became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father uh, all my life. Now therefore, this is where we see the transformation that has taken place in Judah's life. Now therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And you see the transformation of Judah here. Of, hey, we see, number one, humility. We see an acknowledgement of guilt. And he says, hey, the Lord has found out our guilt, the transgression that we've committed. You see an absolute love for his own father. He's explaining, hey, I can't go back without Benjamin because if I do that, my father's going to pass away. That's going to break my father's heart. We also see a love for, for his brother Benjamin. Okay, and, and this is the dramatic transformation. What was Judah earlier? He was willing to, to sell the favorite son. Hey, let's get rid of him. Let's sell him off into slavery. Uh, that was his attitude earlier. But after his, his humiliating experience, and I think after the Lord's been working upon his heart, now what is Judah willing to do? Now instead of being willing to sell the favorite son into slavery, he's willing to, to take that son's place in slavery and say, hey, let me be the servant. You, you let Benjamin go. I'll come be your servant. Uh, and, and so you just see this, this complete transformation and this, this complete about face from Judah. And ultimately, I think that is what, what breaks Joseph's heart. Uh, and, and he finally, verse 45, or chapter 45 begins, verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. I think that act actually just melted Joseph's heart. He's like, okay, th- you know, there's a difference here, and I see it in in Judah. And it's amazing just to see this. And you may be saying, well, so how did that work for for good in, in Judah's life? How did How did God use Judah's sin... For good, and and how did he use Judah's sin to bring glory to, to God? Well, uh, the three older brothers uh, of, of Judah, Judah's the, the fourth oldest, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. When in Genesis 49, when Jacob gathers his sons together and, and prophesies what's going to happen in the end of days, uh, he condemns his three oldest sons, Reuben uh, for sleeping with his concubine, and then uh, Simeon and Levi were the two who went and and killed the town of Shechem. He condemns those three, and Judah is just as much a sinner as them, but, but Judah is blessed by Jacob. In 49 verses 8 through 12, uh, you, you see a, a blessing given to, to Judah, even though he's just as much a sinner, but you see uh, a transformation. You see re- repentance uh, on the part of Judah. Additionally, you see uh, the blessing of God, because what's revealed in Genesis 49 is that the Messiah is going to come through Judah's line. Uh, you know, this this reality of what a blessing to be in the line of the Messiah. 
Uh, and even more so, the, the, Judah's daughter-in-law, Tamar, gave birth to twins. And one of those twins, Perez, so this child who was, I guess, born in immorality, born uh, as a result of sin, God uses that child in the line of Jesus. Perez is in the line. You can see it in uh, the genealogy in Matthew, uh, that that Perez is a part of that uh, line of the Messiah. What a blessing that is. And then Revelation 5.5, think about this, throughout eternity, Judah will always be remembered as a forefather of Jesus. Revelation 5, five says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. What a blessing for Judah, right? Even though he's, he's a sinner, throughout eternity, he's going to be remembered as, as being in the line of Christ. That Christ came through his lineage, even though... He was a sinner, even though uh, he, he committed horrible sins. But, but God used that. God redeemed that sin and used it for good in the life of Judah. And he used it to bring glory to uh, his own name. See, God has a plan and is working to fulfill that plan. In Joseph's time, God was working to prepare the world for the coming of his son, Jesus. So not only is God working to, to provide and feed uh, Jacob's family, but he's got bigger plans leading it up to and beyond Christ coming to this earth to live a perfect life and then die on the cross. God is preparing the world now for the return of his son. Uh, the, the church at large is God's plan A for transforming the world. So this is, uh, as we see, we see God's plan on display in Genesis. Now let's, let's talk about God's plan now. It's, hey, the church bringing the gospel to the world, making disciples, proclaiming who Jesus is and what he's done. And an ambassador Bible fellowship is, is a small but not insignificant part of that, uh, part of, of God's will. And, and I'm excited to, to be a part of that with you. And we can begin to think of that. Okay, how is God going to use us in the days to come as a, as a church body moving forward? But then also individually of thinking through and realizing that God is working in you and through you. And each and every individual has a small, tiny role. Every believer has a role to play in God's plan of redemption throughout history. Uh, and so as you see these these small circumstances in your life that you're like, what is that? How do I make, how, what do I make of that? God, why did you have that happen? Um, understand that God is using small decisions and chance encounters uh, for your good and for his glory. Understand that God is able to use other people's sin against you for your good and his glory. And that God is even able to redeem your own sinful decisions. Uh, to sanctify you, to make you more like his son, Jesus. And he's able to redeem those and, and turn them and use them for his own glory. Now, is that a free license to sin? No. That, that's not what I want you to take away from this morning. But even in the midst of your sin, God can use that for good. And earlier I spoke of, of Joseph's wisdom to view his circumstances through the lens of God's sovereignty. Of Hey, he was looking uh, at, uh, he was able to acknowledge the, the actions of man and their plans uh, but he was also able to perceive the, the greater purposes of God uh, in the midst of everything. Uh, and it's actually very similar to what, uh, or something that the Apostle Peter says uh, uh, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, and he's preaching in the temple, Acts 2, verses 22 and 23. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, speaking to the Jews, crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, speaking of the Romans. And see, what the Jews and the Romans intended for evil, what they wanted to accomplish uh, through their, their sinful hearts, their sinful plans, was, hey, we want to we murder Jesus. But what was God's plan in the midst of that? Now, I'm going to use uh, the, the murder of my son for good. What they intended for evil, God used for good. And understand that there has never been a greater act of treachery than the betrayal and murder of Christ. There's never been a greater act or an affront of, of sin against God than the murder and betrayal of his son. And yet even that, God used for good. God was able to take the, the worst evil that mankind has ever committed and, and use that for good to redeem a people for himself. And, and that's something that we need to keep in mind because oftentimes we look at our circumstances and we say, man, this... This is, this is an evil that's been committed against me. There's, how can God ever use this for good? And they wait, look, at, look to the cross. Look at what God was able to redeem. And if he can redeem that, the worst evil in human history, can he redeem those small circumstances in our lives? Absolutely. God is able to use them for good. Will we, will we know it immediately? Will we understand it completely in this life? Maybe, maybe not. But we can rest assured that God can redeem our suffering. He can use it for good. And our hope doesn't come from asking God why. Or, hey God, how are you going to use this? How, what are you going to do? God, our hope doesn't come from that, but our hope comes uh, from those glasses that I spoke of earlier, of viewing our circumstances through the lens that God is completely sovereign, God is infinitely wise and infinitely good, and He's able to use all of this together in my life uh, and in His plan of redemption to bring glory to Himself. And that's heavy, isn't it? That's that's pretty amazing. And and what I want to do now, I'll I'll, I'll pray. And after I pray, uh, Ryan's gonna gonna play uh, just a, a few chords. Uh, and I'll just invite you guys to to respond to what we've heard and and, and offer praise back up to God uh, for for who He is and what He's done, how He's worked in your life. Uh, this is a great time to, to cry out to him, Lord, how are, you, how are you working in my life now? Help me to understand it. Help me to have faith. Uh, help me to entrust myself into your all-powerful hands. Uh, and we'll, we'll sing one last song, and then uh, Bruce will have announcements. But let's go before our God now because of what he was able to do through his son, Jesus. Almighty God, you, you are our creator. You are our sustainer. You have given us life and breath and everything. Lord, you, you have a perfect and glorious plan to exalt your name above every name. You have a purpose for our suffering. Lord, you use uh, our own sins. You use other sins against us. You use even the smallest circumstances in our life to usher history toward a culminating point of, of glorifying your name. And Lord, in the midst of our own circumstances, I pray that you would help us to, to keep our eyes upon Christ, to see 
our lives in light of what He has done, to see our lives in light of Your character, Your goodness, Your faithfulness, Lord. Great is Your faithfulness. Lord, help us to entrust ourselves to You, to worship You through song, to worship You through prayer, to cry out to You, Abba, Father. You are a good God who loves us and cares for us, and You are working to sanctify us into the image of Your Son and to bring glory to Your name. We thank you and we praise you.